Glad you are here with us today as we celebrate the empty tomb. The two significant miracles that have to be addressed by all mankind are creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that true? If it is, that takes us immediately to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. If creation is possible, then miracles are possible. If miracles are possible... You are invited all the way to the cross. Is it possible for death to become life? And if that is possible, then it is not only reasonable, it is necessary that you believe whatever he says. So history says that it's true. The Bible says that it's true. People like Tacitus, who was the Roman scholar, of the time of Jesus says that apparently it's true. Josephus says apparently it's true. He was a Jewish scholar that who didn't believe in Jesus. Tacitus didn't believe in Jesus. Atheist and antagonist to the New Testament today say that we believe that they believed that they interacted with him after he died and rose again. So proof does not lead anyone to Jesus without faith. But the proof is there. So we're going like last week as we went historically from Genesis to Palm Sunday and the significance of that, how that, that event and the way he came into the city was pointed to from Genesis to Revelation. We go back to Moses as we approach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is the tomb empty? Is Jesus risen from the dead? If it's true. Think of it from a reasonable standpoint, first of all. See if you agree with me. The reason that you even know that Jesus died is because he rose. The reason that you even know that he was born in Bethlehem is because he rose. The reason that you even know his name is because he rose. If Jesus dies and doesn't raise, we aren't here today celebrating his name. His name is an anomaly. If he simply has a cause, treats people well, and dies. It is his resurrection that allows us, even historically, to know that he existed. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your son. Help us to better understand. Help us to appreciate more and be more prepared to share with others the, the proof of not only the existence of your son, 
not only the death of your son, but the resurrection of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. The year is 1446 B.C. This is chapter 12 of Exodus is dated. 1446 years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the Jews, 400 years to the year, have been in Egypt. And God is about to deliver them. The Son of God, who would go to the cross for you and I, has come to earth to meet with Moses to lead his people out of Israel in a picture of the cross. So we read last year in John, or last week in John chapter 5, that Moses knew about Jesus. Moses wrote about Jesus. Everything that Moses put to ink and paper was about Jesus, including Exodus chapter 12. As we look inside this Exodus that is so famous historically and biblically, in Exodus chapter 12, we will just pick it up in verse 5. As we look at this picture of Christ, a millennia and a half before Christ, the animals you, that you must that you choose must be a year old male without defect. Without defect is significant in the picture of Christ. It pictures the sinless Savior. And you may take from them from sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. When all of the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lambs. Jesus, pre-incarnate, is speaking this. He is painting his own picture. He says, you need to find perfect lambs. You need to keep them that way until the 14th day of the month. This is the month of Nisan. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on that day, you are to slaughter them. And you are to put the, door, the blood across the door frames and the doorposts of your houses, picturing the blood of Jesus Christ across the cross. So that at the 14th day of the month of Nisan, 1,480 years later, on the exact day of the exact month, at twilight, Jesus dies on the cross. Moses knows this, and he is teaching this to the Israelites. Drop down to verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I, the Son of God, see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where Passover comes from. I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So in Exodus chapter 12, Passover is established. Turn to Leviticus chapter 23. As we look in this chapter on the festivals of God, seven of them, all seven of them will be fulfilled, fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So he fulfilled four of them when he came the first time. 
and he will fulfill the other three when he comes the second time. So we're going to look at the first three, Nisan the 14th, 15th, and 16th, 1,480 years before Christ fulfills this on the exact same days, on the exact same time on Passover. In verse 4, these are the Lord's appointed festivals and sacred assemblies. If we went back to Genesis and day 4, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars marked the sacred days and gave us our calendar. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month, the first month of their spiritual year, which is Nisan. And at twilight, again, we are told that this celebration would be the slaughtering of the lambs as a picture of Christ, verse 6, on the 15th day of the month, the Lord's festival of the unleavened bread begins. Unleavened bread is pictured by the lamb without defect. So on the 15th day, this is fulfilled on that Sabbath, the Saturday. Um, reading on, for seven days you must eat bread without yeast on the First day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. That's the 14th and the 15th. Verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am give, going to give you and you reap its harvest, Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. So Jesus would die on the cross the day before the Sabbath. The unleavened bread would go into the grave on the Sabbath. And on the day after the Sabbath, he would raise as the first fruits of the resurrection. Verse 12, on that day, wave the sheaf. You must sacrifice a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb, a year old without defect, together with a grain offering and two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and a drink offering of a hin of oil or a hin of wine, you must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. People ask us, why do we worship on Sunday? Well, we worship on Sunday because Jesus rose from the grave. A lot of people don't believe that. They believe in the Sabbath and they believe on Saturday. When was Sunday established as the, the day of worship? 1,446 years before Christ. Passover lambs were sacrificed the day before the Sabbath, according to the law of Moses. Jesus went into the tomb, or the, the unleavened bread pictured the tomb, which is on the Sabbath. Paul says repeatedly that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. First fruits, Leviticus chapter 23, 
was celebrated on Sunday, the first day of the week. When Jesus raises from the dead, he fulfills first fruits. So Sunday is established as the day of worship when the law is given to Moses. It anticipates and it waits for its fulfillment. When Jesus comes out of the tomb on Sunday morning, he establishes worship and the conclusion of Passover and first fruits. Moving forward from then, if we just glance at the festival of weeks, which we know as Pentecost, verse 15, from that day after the Sabbath, you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. So from first fruits forward, worship is on Sunday. So as Jews in the Old Testament until Christ comes, they are continuing their Sabbath. But we are told here that the first fruits is the day after the Sabbath. Pentecost is 50 days after the Sabbath, but it's 49 days after first fruits. So count off seven weeks. God tells Moses, meaning that on Sunday, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, he comes on a Sunday. Jesus rises on a Sunday. Pentecost, the church is born on a Sunday. Jesus meets. If you look through the Gospels, when he would show up and prove that he was alive, he would do that on Sundays. Let's fast forward to the Gospel of John in chapter 13. As we move forward in time, 1,480 years. As we looked last week, there are extensive prophecies that pointed to everything that Jesus did in this last week, the Passion Week as it is called. Um, we are now on Thursday. As we move into Thursday, Luke tells us, I think in Luke chapter 23, that the two disciples who were sent to get the Passover ready to, or, were Peter and John, these two intimate, close friends of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us details that John doesn't focus on. John is always focused on the theological purpose of Christ why he did what he did, how he fulfilled the Old Testament, how he became the Passover sacrifice, how he fulfilled first fruits and all of these things. So as you read through the Gospel of John, he continually, this fulfilled this, this fulfilled this, this fulfilled this. So Matthew and Mark and Luke have a chapter on this night. We have in the Gospel of John, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 are all this night, this Thursday, this waiting for the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ. We come to, to John chapter 13, and we're in this upper room. And for Jesus, the tension is heavy. There are 13 or 14 persons in this room. There is Jesus. There are 12 disciples, one of which 
will betray him, one of which will deny him, two of which are arguing who's the, who's the best disciple. And Satan. Satan, unlike God, is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. He's in this room. And we begin in verse 1 just to acknowledge, first of all, the timing of this. It was just before the Passover, which we saw in Exodus chapter 12, established. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to to betray Jesus. So this is the setting that we come into this room, this Last Supper. John isn't going to focus on the bread and the wine and the things that the other Gospels focus on. He's going to focus on what's happening theologically. What is actually going on in this room is a struggle for creation. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave the keys to the world to Satan. In this room is a struggle that will fulfill is going to fulfill Genesis 3.15, that a descendant of Eve would crush Satan, that Satan would bruise Jesus. So in this room we have this setting. John is looking back. He understands things he didn't understand in this room, and he is telling us through the Holy Spirit that as we approach this night in this room, this prepared Passover that Jesus has been looking forward to, Satan's in the room. He's already won Judas's heart. Judas cares for Jesus. Judas likes Jesus. Judas likes being around Jesus. But he is just like the rich man. The rich man says, It all adds up, Jesus. I'm following you. Jesus says to him, give away your possessions and then follow me. And he walks away. That's Judas too. Judas is the one who says, look at this waste. Why are they pouring this perfume? We could have sold it and used the money. John would tell us, he only said this because he was a thief. John would tell us in the Gospel of John that they would put in, the ladies would raise all of this money and they'd put it in a bag and they would carry it around and Judas would carry it and it would provide all of Jesus' food and their travel expenses and Judas would put his hand in there and put it in his pocket. So Judas cared about Jesus, but he loved possessions more. John is telling us here that Judas has already been won over by Satan Drop down in chapter 13. What has happened between there and verse 15 is that that Jesus is trying to teach them about love. He is trying to teach them about serving. He, He takes off his cloak and he wraps it around his waist. He gets a towel and he gets down on his knees and he cleans the dud and the the dirt and the filth off of their feet one at a time as he is teaching them how to love each other, how to serve each other. We pick it up in verse 15. 
where Jesus says, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus says, I'm training you to be servants. John and James are arguing, who gets to sit by you in heaven? Peter says, I'm the one who will never betray you. Jesus says, you don't get it. I want you to love each other. I want you to serve each other. That's the point, the last thing that I want to leave you with. So he loved them to the end, we read in verse 2, by showing them the full extent of his humility towards them. Drop down to verse 26. Jesus has said that he would betrayed, be betrayed. Peter says to John, who is leaning against Jesus, ask him who it is. And he tells him, and then in verse 26, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. So this one place at one time, Satan has entered into Judas. Judas is fully occupied by Satan himself. Remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter says, this shall never happen to you, who does he address? Not Peter. He addresses Satan. When he turns to Judas, he's speaking to Satan. Do what you're going to do and do it quickly. This is the tension that is in this room. Drop down to verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, when we come into church, when we gather, when we assemble, we have a, a messed up picture in America. What does church have for me is whether or not I go into a door. Serving each other, loving each other is the reason the Bible gives us for church. So even in the, the passage where he says, continue meeting together, don't give up meeting together, he says, come together, love one another, encourage one another, spur one another on towards love and good works. That's church. I can read my Bible at home, I can sing at home, I can learn at home, I can't serve you at home. I can't love you through a screen. I have to come together for that, and Jesus is trying to impress this on his disciples. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, 
you will disown me three times. It would have been as quiet there as it is right now in this room. Judas walks out the door possessed by Satan. Jesus knows everything that's going to happen from this moment forward. Peter says, these guys might leave you, not me. Jesus says, you will leave me the loudest. You will deny that you even know who I am. So imagine the tension in this room where Jesus has told them three times, the Son of Man must be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and they will kill him. And now he's saying, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. The tension has risen for three and a half years in Jesus' ministry. They only really feel safe because he's walking with them. And he's leaving. And Peter says, no. If you're going, I'm going. I don't want to be anywhere without you. In fact, I would die for you. Jesus says, you will find out if that's true. And the whole room, the air is just pulled out of the room, leading into John chapter 14 and verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. I would say it's fair to say that no one in the room was on track with Jesus, but we have one man who's honest enough to admit it. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So they go and John explains the teaching of the Holy Spirit in chapter 15 and 16. We, we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and that, that his sweat is coming so profusely that blood is coming in the drops of sweat. He says multiple times, I am overwhelmed to the point of death. And they don't tell us what he's praying John, in John chapter 17, gives us his prayer. What he is actually praying while he is dripping drops of blood, and in those verses, around verse 21, he tells us in this room, I'm praying for you guys. I'm praying for everyone who will believe in the message of the apostles that I will send. And he is carrying the weight of this and the separation that is soon to come between he and his father, they come to the garden and the soldiers come now and Jesus says, it's time. My accuser is here. And in John chapter 18, we see as they approach, Jesus would go on trial six times Thursday evening into Friday morning until about noon on Friday, John would tell us. 
And in John chapter 18 and verse 12, we see this, this first trial. What has happened here in the moments preceding this is they come to arrest Jesus and they say, where is Jesus? He says, I'm right here. And they faint. The power and the glory of Jesus causes the soldiers to fall on their ground, on their backs. And he says, I asked you a question. Who are you looking for? And they arrest him and they begin to beat him and they put him in chains and they take him away and they take him to be put on trial. He would be on trial this whole night. They would beat him and hit him all during these trials. And the first person he is going to meet is Annas. In John chapter 18 and verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas. This is under the instruction of the Sanhedrin and the high priest. Verse 13, and brought him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good for one man if one man died for the people. God spoke to, through him in that way. Understand that um, every time government mixes with church, it goes bad, 100% of the time. The government and Judaism are fully married here. The reason they go to Annas first is Annas was, if you remember Cornelius back in Luke chapter 2, Cornelius appointed Annas as high priest. So Annas is appointed to a position that he will either retire or die at an old age that his son would replace him. The Romans are running the church at this time, or they're running Judaism. So Roman leaders are appointing the high priests, not Jews. Annas, according to Moses, once he is the high priest, is the high priest for life. He's still very much alive. And there have been seven high priests since him that are all appointed by Roman governors because they don't want any one Jew to become prominent. John is explaining this theologically and wants us to know why they brought him to Annas. Annas is the high priest in God's eyes, not Caiaphas. Caiaphas is not even Annas's son. Six of his sons have already been high priests. Caiaphas is his son-in-law through marriage. So Annas, John is telling us, is significant. There are two people who have the power to say he dies, he lives from a human standpoint. Annas and Pilate. So John is going to focus on Annas and he's going to focus on Pilate. He goes before Caiaphas, sent there by Annas, in Matthew 26, 57 through 68, we won't go there. The Sanhedrin put him on trial as they bring him back to Pilate. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, we're not going to go there. But now we go to the second person who can either put Jesus on the cross or keep him from the cross. 
In John chapter 18, we pick it up in verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, as you see there in trial number three, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, who they went before the Sanhedrin, to the palace of the Roman governor. They're taking him to the person that they want to execute his crucifixion. By now it was early in the morning, so this is trial number four. He is arrested. All night long he is beaten and put on trial and um, through one trial after another. He is alone in this. The only person who is in eyesight of all that is happening is the Apostle John. Because Annas and John's father Zebedee were known to each other and they were in the same circles. By now it was early in the morning, and to avoid ceremonially uncleanness, they did not enter the palace. They weren't worried about killing Jesus, but they didn't want to get their hands dirty by going in the palace and not be able to celebrate the Passover because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were a criminal, they replied, we would, if he were not a criminal, they reply, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate is immediately trying to get away from this. He is trying to push him back to the Sanhedrin, to push him back to Caiaphas, to push him back to Annas. I don't want anything to do with this. It's early in the morning. What has happened through the night? Well, Pilate has, his wife has a dream and in that dream, she sees the king of kings as the person they're going to put on the cross. And she wakes up in the morning and says, don't do it. Don't have anything to do with this man. So they come to Pilate early in the morning. Pilate says, you deal with him. I don't want any part of this. Reading on. Verse 31, Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. We want him crucified is what they're saying. And we can't do that under Roman authority. Verse 32, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus said that in John chapter 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That means that he would be crucified. Verse 32, or verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it? You have done. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, this is important, now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus, we talked about this last week, in his, in his desired will, the world would have believed in him through following the Jews. 
all through the book of Matthew, all into the book of Acts even, even the Apostle Paul are preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is being offered here. And it's being offered through the Jews. It would be a Jewish kingdom. Anna said, no, we don't want it. Caiaphas said, no, we don't want him as our king. The elders and the chief priests said, no, we don't want him. Crucify him. Because we can't do that on our own. Jesus says, now my kingdom is from another world. If it were from this world, they would rescue me. But my kingdom is from another world. Reading on. Pilate went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus again. Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Remember these questions. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. In other words, my kingdom will not come now. Verse 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, and this is clumsy Greek to English, but he is effectively saying, you're right, I am. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. We talked about this last week. Why did Jesus come into the world? John 18, 37. To testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Why did Jesus die? 2 Corinthians 5, 15. He died that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. He came to tell the truth. He died so that people would follow him in the truth. That is the reason why he came. Pilate says in verse 38, What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. This is the first time he will say this. Pilate has heard from his wife. He has asked him, Are you the king? Jesus has effectively said, Yes, I am. And my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate is uncomfortable to say the very least. I believe, Pilate's, Pilate believes, Jesus is who he says he is. And he doesn't want to put him on the cross. He doesn't want to be responsible. We won't go to Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12, but between verse 38... And verse 39 is the trial with Herod. Pilate is beginning a series of moves here to get himself off the hook. So the first thing he does is he says, I find him innocent. No reason to kill him. John is establishing here the innocence of Jesus even through human governments. All night long, they have put him on trial 
to find a reason for him to be guilty. And the only thing that they have found to kill him for is that he claimed to be the Son of God. True. King. True. The only questions Jesus would answer, and John is the one who gives us all of his answers primarily, is this is who I am. Whenever he is asked those questions, he answers them in the affirmative. So he now is sent to Herod. Herod plies him with questions. Herod and Pilate become friends for the first time. Herod says, I'm not going to convict him. He sends him back to Pilate for his final trial. So in verse 39, we start trial number six. But it is your custom for me to release to you a prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? So first he says he's innocent. I find him innocent. You brought him to me. You put him on trial. I'm the governor. Innocent. Number two, he sends him to Herod. You deal with him. You actually have more influence in Judea. Herod says, nope, back to you. Pilate says, okay, it's Passover. I can release someone to you. I released him. Their response, they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Barabbas was a, a murderer who rose up against the Romans because of their oppression, and they want to release Barabbas. Pilate takes another step to try to appease the Jews and get off the hook. Chapter 19 and verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted a together a crown of thorns and put it on his head they clothed him in a purple robe which shows royalty and went up to him again and again saying hail king of the jews and they slapped him in the face the other gospels say that they were actually beating him with clubs as his face was covered so Pilate thinks maybe this will satisfy them we've made him look ridiculous we've beaten him we've flogged him once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there. Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. Here's his punishment. I'm done. Thinking that the Jews will be satisfied. Verse 6. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, third time, I find no basis for a charge against him. The two people that can crucify or send him to crucifixion have both said he didn't do anything. The person who could put him on a cross says he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. Let him go. Crucify him, the Jews said. 
crucify him. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. That's an important statement in the world we live in today. Um, Dave was talking about this, I think, last week or the week before. Government positions are appointed by Jesus. People in those positions are appointed by human beings. That's what Jesus is saying here to Pilate. Pilate says, I am the one who have authority to crucify you. Jesus says, you have authority from me, not over me. I will only die if I choose. Government all rests on the shoulders of Jesus. We learn that from Isaiah 6, even before he was, or Isaiah 9, before he was even born. Reading on verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Even this is a lie. The Pharisees and the Sadducees who were saying this came to Jesus with Peter one day and said, why don't you pay the taxes or what should we do about the taxes? He said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. So this is a bold lie. Jesus acknowledged the position of Caesar. Jesus is saying here he's over Caesar. He's over Pilate, the governor, but they're lying. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. This is when the lambs are getting ready. It was about noon. So Jesus has been going through this from Thursday afternoon until Friday at noon. He's been on trial all day. He's been beaten. He's had no food. He's had nothing to drink. He is standing before Pilate on his final trial of the night. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. That's where the government of this country would like to take us. Verse 16, finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Jesus would go to the cross, he would speak seven times, and again, John is purposeful in having three of those. He would first say in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, while the soldiers 
are mocking him. The man on his right is mocking him. The man on his left is mocking him. And they are all, and Jesus would have been literally struggling to breathe, pushing up with his feet so his lungs could expand and then falling again. And he, he, he speaks these words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness for everyone. And the next time Jesus speaks, in between that and verse 34 and speaking in verse 43, the man on his left realizes, he would forgive me. And he says, will you remember me in paradise? And the next time Jesus speaks, he says, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. He saves a criminal on the cross while he is suffering for the world. And then we see the third cry, another intimate picture, verse 25 of chapter 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister. That's very important here. His mother is Mary. Her sister is Salome, John's mother. Before the cross, there is a line of women watching him suffer. The disciples are all hiding except one, and that's the Apostle John. It's pretty important for him to be there. His first cousin is on the cross. His aunt is his mother, and his mother is Jesus' aunt. This is an intimate family picture here. We don't see Joseph in the Bible after Jesus is 12 years old. So Jesus made sure Mary was taken care of. Jesus is leaving. So we read verse 25 near the cross of Jesus. Stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, that's the Apostle John, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. John brought Mary into his home and took the responsibility that Jesus had until that moment John would have known Jesus the longest. He was the closest to Jesus, but this family is so tightly entwined that, again, all that's going on with Jesus, he's looking at his mother and thinking, John, you take care of her. I'm leaving. And he does. The third cry, beginning in verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it, soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So many of these things that are happening are, are written in the Psalms. So if we go to Psalm chapter 63, verse 1, for example, um, Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word. 
So in Psalm 63, we see David writing, but it's Jesus speaking as he says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. I long for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And in these three words, Jesus simply says, I am thirsty. He's speaking to his dad. You think of Psalm 42. Again, Korah is writing, Jesus is speaking, as a deer panteth after the water, so my soul thirsts for you. I thirst for God, verse 2. I thirst for the living God. When can I go to see God? Jesus is speaking all of this in three words. I am thirsty. And then in Psalm 69 and verse 21, John puts this in so that we know this is him. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So when he says I'm thirsty, he's saying, Father, I'm coming soon. And then they hold up vinegar to his lips to fulfill Psalm 69 and verse 21. Cry number six. Theologically, as we just read, verse 28, knowing that everything had now been finished, verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So cry number seven, he speaks as he is dying. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All of these are first fruits. These are, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 23, Jesus is the first, he will do this first. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We see in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, we see in Philippians chapter 1, out of the body is present of the Lord. Jesus is a spirit being with a body in this moment. What are we? Are we bodies with a spirit or spirits with a body? We are spirits with a body. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians, I think, chapter 6, that to be out of the body is to be present with the Lord. As soon as a person dies, now their spirit is immediately with God. As soon as a, as a person believes in Jesus, their spirit, according to Ephesians 2 and Colossians 3, is in Christ, seated next to the Father. He is telling the Father, Father, my spirit is coming to you right now. His body is going to the grave. That's what happens to us because of this, because of what Jesus did. Turn to chapter 20. Imagine at the end of this, the disciples are locked in a room. They think that they're going to be hunted. They're terrified. Where is Jesus? What do we do now? There is no sleep happening. I don't know what you slept like um, before Easter morning this morning, but no one is sleeping that knows Jesus. They are horrified. They are terrified. Peter is convinced, as we read on in John, that Jesus is done with Peter. 
So Peter would tell Mary Magdalene in one place, go tell Peter I'm back. Peter has denied Jesus three times. Judas has committed suicide. Everyone ran to fulfill Zechariah's promise that strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, except John. They're all locked in a room. Mary Magdalene was delivered from demons and prostitution and probably expressed love to Jesus more than any human being. His mother, his aunt, all of these people are trying to sort things out. And we pick it up then on Sunday morning, early, verse 1, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, that's how early it was, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, meaning John, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. There are women that come with Mary, but Mary is strategic. Mary is the first to see. Mary is the first to proclaim. Mary is the first to see him risen. She is the first in God's eyes. She is the one who will tell the world the tomb is empty. He is risen from the dead. So she runs to Peter and John and the other disciples to tell them He's gone. She thinks someone has stolen the body. She's not sure what has happened. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran John. I guess John's not afraid to tell us he's faster than Peter. And he reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb and saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth that was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. So John gets there a while before Peter, and he's looking in the tomb. And he's seeing the neatly folded cloth sitting there. And he's thinking, what happened? Peter runs by him, goes into the tomb, sees it, has the same question, and he leaves. John goes in there by himself. And he says, it's true. He's risen. He believes. You must confess with your mouth he is Lord. John has done that. Now that he is risen, Paul says, you must believe that God raised him from the dead. John says, I believe it's true. He is the first disciple to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Reading on. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. 
At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't not, did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus is supernaturally invoking a conversation while hiding his identity. Verse 15, he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. By herself, Mary is thinking, I'll do whatever I have to do. Then he said to her, Mary. And he allows her to discover who he is. He is standing in front of her, the only person who has ever loved this woman in her life, says, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni! which means teacher. And she obviously, from the picture here, comes up and wraps her arms around his legs. She's bowing at his feet, and Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The story goes on. In the next 40 days, Jesus would show himself more than a dozen times to thousands of people. So that by the end of the first year, they had a, a creed that every follower of Jesus memorized. And Paul includes that creed in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. He said, the things that I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised to life on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to the disciples, that he appeared to 500 at one time, that he finally appeared to James, his brother, and last of all, he appeared to me. They would have memorized that from young kids to adults, because now for the rest of human history, the, the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the number one thing for man to decide. Did Jesus raise from the dead? Let's pray. Lord, we, we have so many advantages 2,000 years later. There is so much forensic, physical, archaeological proof. But it remains the same. We look at your word written by your son and determine if we will follow the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to follow him so faithfully that people who don't know him would come to know him. In Jesus' name, amen.